All right, well, good morning, everybody. Again, glad uh, that we could at least do this, and thank you for making it a priority um, to be together in some way, shape, or form. Um, we're starting a new series uh, today, and again, every time we start a new series, uh, it's, really, it's really tough because uh, there's a lot of work that has to go into kind of setting the table for us, uh, especially when it's challenging texts like the book of Judges. And so uh, what we're going to do today is it's going to be kind of like half set the table, half preaching uh, and getting us into it. But I wanted to start and do a little bit um, of work so that as we go and as we read and as we study, we have a little bit of um, we're prepared, right? I'm giving you kind of a toolbox of the right tools to then go and kind of start mining out of judges what we need to see. Um, so that's what we'll do this morning. Let me pray and we will uh, we'll do that. Father, thank you that uh, we have your word. Thank you that you are a God who speaks and reveals yourself. And Lord, if there's one thing that is just so true and beautiful about scripture, it's that it is the self-revealing of who you are what you're like, your character, your nature, your will, your desire. And we get to lean into that and experience the beauty of that, the power of that. And I just pray that you would use your word this morning in us, that you would challenge, that you would encourage, that you would confront, that you would bring life where we need it most. So we just uh, invite you into this time, ask that you would Spirit, just apply it to our hearts and minds, renew our minds and hearts in the way that you know we need it. We ask these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Um, so I would, if we were in person, I would ask you to put your hand up, but I'm not going to do that. But how many of you have heard a sermon on judges before? Okay. How many of you have heard a sermon on judges other than Deborah, Gideon, or Samson? Okay. How many of you have heard an entire teaching series from the pulpit on judges? Not many of us, right? Very, very few. Because, and actually it's funny when we go through, when I'm looking for commentaries and looking for other resources on this book, it's very hard to find because Judges is a strange, disturbing, weird kind of text to deal with, especially for our modern eyes and minds and hearts. Um, Hebrews 11.32 says, I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, or Jephthah. And it's like, that's kind of how we feel about judges, right? It's like, well, I don't really have time to go and visit this text and tell you about this, right? So the question that we want to start with as we go and study this for the next several weeks is, what does this collection of strange at best stories uh, and disturbing at worst actually have to teach us? What do some of these so-called heroes, right? So we call them kind of the heroes of the faith who really are all compromised in some way, shape or form. But these so-called heroes like a reluctant farmer or a left-handed assassin or a virtuous prophetess or a sex-addicted Nazarite and a bastard bandit. Like what do these people have to actually teach us and show us what is going on in this text? And not only that, not only do we have to wrestle with the characters themselves, the figures in the text themselves, but we also need to wrestle with some of the disturbing moral and ethical issues that are presented through this text, because there, there are many. And there's actually some other tensions theologically that arise out of this text as well. And this is why as a church, it's really good to, to preach through all sorts of different types of genre and all different books of the Bible because we can't just avoid this stuff, right? We can't avoid kind of the, the tension and, and the awkwardness and the weirdness of some of these texts. We actually have to confront them and look at them. But as I studied over the last few weeks for this series, um, I just couldn't help but kind of give us a viewer discretion is advised. That this book really does present us with some strange and disturbing um, and some grimy, like it's a very grimy, raw, dark, violent record of what people are capable of without God, but here's the real kicker, and with him. And this is the tension that we're left with in this text, that we're actually reading stories and looking at the decisions of people that claim to know the Lord. They actually know God. They've been rescued and redeemed by God. And we see what they are actually capable of. That's what Judges does. And it comes and kind of puts it up in front of us. And I think this is one of the reasons why we struggle so much with the Old Testament, especially Old Testament narrative. So it's very easy to kind of get out of touch with some of this, out of touch with entire sections or entire books of our Bible. 
And you got to remember that 45% of our Bible is narrative, that that's most of it, right? That the most of our scripture is actually made up of some kind of story or micro stories and, and narrative. So it's really, really important to try to understand these things, even though we are thousands of years and thousands of miles away from the original culture and customs and traditions of the day. So in this series, what we want to do is I, I don't just want you to come away with a better understanding of judges and answers to your questions about judges. You will get that. There will be some of that. But I actually want more than that. I want us to come away with a toolbox so that we're equipped to read and understand, interpret and apply biblical narrative, right? Understand the rules of engagement, some of the mechanisms that were in place in these texts so that we could actually understand them because good interpretation is what leads us to right application. And so often Old Testament narrative is used to say all sorts of things or ignored entirely to say nothing. And that's what we want to avoid. And one thing we have to remember as we go through a series like this is that we don't read the Bible. No one, you do not, no one reads their Bible literally. Okay, we have to stop saying that. I just read my Bible literally. It's an unhelpful statement, if not dangerous, because no one reads their Bible literally. Everyone reads their Bible literarily. And if you remember the series we did last summer, it's so important to understand the vehicle, like the actual text itself that brings us to what the text is about. We have to understand that, right? We have to read the Bible literarily on its terms and in its terms. And then when we do that hard work, then we can move to application. Then we can move from what did it mean what, it, what did it mean and now what does it mean, right, to, to us in our modern day, okay? So I'm gonna start and I'm just gonna roll out before we jump into the text itself, a few key principles for us to think through as you go through and read it and as we go through it as a church, okay? Number one is that you are reading story. Number one, you are reading narrative. You are reading story, which means that there are certain components that make up a story. There's kind of key ingredients that show up in every story, right? So stories are made up of setting and characters and plot. And then that plot can be kind of crude and simple, or it can be very complex. But plots have some kind of a crisis that just builds a tension that leads to a conflict and a climax, right, of that conflict. And then every story kind of has this denouement or this, this kind of like descending down to a resolution. That's what story does. That's why story is so powerful, right? And you got to remember that the Bible is a collection of these micro stories kind of embedded in a macro story, right? It's a whole bunch of micro plots, smaller plot lines that are embedded in a macro plot, a big story, a big plot line. And Judges is exactly that. A bunch of short plots, short stories that take place within a much bigger context. And that to understand that context really does help us come down to the level of these individual stories and, and understand them. And so in Judges, we are dealing with story. But what's very interesting, and I, I know this is, this is new to some of us, but the, the order that we see the Bible in today is not how the original Hebrew Bible was ordered. The original Hebrew Bible was something called the Tanakh, right? So all of you Bible nerds, you knew that. Okay, Tanakh. And the Tanakh was just, you know, T-N-K. It was Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, right? So Torah, obviously, we have the five books of Moses. We have Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then it's in the N, the, the, the Nevi'im, which is the prophets, that we have Judges. Judges actually falls and is categorized originally as a former prophet. Not just story, but a former prophet. Here's why that's important. Because Judges does actually read, although it is story, it does read far more like a set of prophetic judgments, not just story. And so we actually are dealing with something, there's a prophetic push on the audience, the hearer, through the stories of Judges. It's not just like, oh, that's interesting about Samson, that was fun, and then you move on. There's actually something where a mirror is being held up to us so that we can actually understand the prophetic call, something that's being pushed into your lap and mine as the hearer, right? And that's important. That's very important. Okay, that's number one. Number two, the characters themselves that we see, the figures that we run into in Judges, are always held up as a mirror to highlight human vices, 
okay? Human brokenness and God's virtue, okay? I don't know why we've, we've done this, but we've really sanitized all the people in scripture uh, looking for a hero. But the only human virtue that we actually see highlighted throughout scripture anywhere is people who have a committed trust to God, the only virtuous one, okay? So there's no hero in the book of Judges other than God himself. And that's very important to understand. There's no hero in all of scripture other than God himself. There's no hero today other than God himself. There's no leader, there's no one gifted and charismatic enough that is worth us following them and taking them on their word because we're all compromised. That's the point. That's the point of judges. That's the point of the whole biblical arc and narrative. And also what's very interesting about Old Testament story is that very rarely are we told some of the things that we would like to be told about these people, right? Very rarely are we told what they look like. Okay, they were not as materialistic and vain as we are. So we're not gonna get a description of what these people looked like. When we do get a description of what they look like or a physical trait, it's very important though. It's extremely significant to the story. Secondly, we're not told what they're thinking. Okay, now this is the tension. I would love this. I would love if if scripture just told us exactly what was going on in the minds of these characters. Because so often you see something happen and you're just like, what were they thinking? Like, what are they doing, right? Scripture doesn't solve that tension for us. It doesn't tell us why people do what they do. And it often avoids making moral commentary at all for us. Why? Well, because what it's doing is it's actually forcing the hearer and the reader, you and me, to make that moral assessment ourselves. It's to make that moral assessment of what's happening in that text with those people and then reflect on our own state before God, okay? So biblical narrative comes and holds up a big mirror to you and I. And rather than resolve all the moral and ethical and theological tensions of the story, it actually intentionally keeps them there, allows us to sit in that tension. And I think that's why we've chosen overly simplistic readings of these stories because we don't like nuance and we don't like tension. Amen? Like we'd rather just black or white. It's it's as easy as this, but that's not what scripture does for us. Scripture is full of tension unresolved tensions. Why? Well, because it's telling a big story. It's telling a long story and it's actually inviting us in as hearers and readers, okay? So these are all compromised people, all of them, in in every way you can imagine, full of, of, of sin and pride and flaws. That's not even the surprising part about judges though, right? The most surprising part about judges and all of scripture is that God actually continues to pursue and rescue, and love, and redeem these compromised people. That's the, that's the point, and that is what brings us to the hero of the story, okay? Also, in biblical narrative, we're almost done, and we'll jump right in. There's a big difference between something that is described, that's just listed and described, and something that's prescribed, okay? Just because something is mentioned doesn't mean it's endorsed, And that's very important to understand as a ruling of engagement when we read, especially the Old Testament. We have to be very careful as modern readers not to move from what is to what ought, okay? Everything that is described is not being prescribed in scripture. There's a big difference. And it takes a lot of work to actually kind of dig down into and mine that out of each text. But that's very, very important because there's lots of things that are actually very disturbing that are described in the Old Testament. Lots of things about polygamy and sexual sin and slavery and violence, all sorts of things that are described that are definitely not being prescribed. And in fact, often they're described to show us the consequences of human frailty and brokenness. Okay, and third and finally, the author's timeline is not the same as the story's timeline. Okay, and this is really important too because our Western modern thinking, we love just simple linear story. Biblical authors didn't tell story in a linear fashion. They allowed tension and they told them in a cyclical fashion. 
Okay, so there's this kind of like circular rhythm to story that you come back to, and Judges does it perfectly. And I don't have time to get into it. If you are a nerd and you wanna hear some of this, you could call me this week and we can talk more. But in the text in Judges, it's actually beautifully uh, put together in Hebrew so that it shows us exactly this downward spiral, this cycle of these 12 different leaders in seven different cycles of destruction and chaos and disorder whole book is about this cycle of compromise and where it brings us. So we got to understand though, that the author's timeline is not the same as the story's timeline. So we're not dealing with like a journalist who was standing there watching Gideon being like, oh, okay, let me write down what Gideon, right? That's not what happened here. What we have to understand is that Israel was an oral culture before they trans actually transmitted and collected the written documents themselves. And so from all the research that kind of Old Testament scholars have done, what we do know about Judges is that it actually covers, it takes place around the 1300s BC, right before kind of Samuel and Saul show up in about 11th century, okay? That's when it takes place. But we know that it wasn't actually transmitted and written down until after the Babylonian exile. This is really important. So the author writes this down after the Babylonian exile after 587 BC, okay? Why? Well, because the community was trying to make sense of this national crisis, trying to make sense of how they lost the land that God had promised them, trying to make sense of the displacement and the tragedy of walking outside of the covenant that they thought they had secure with the Lord. So this is key. Authors of the Old Testament especially, rather than write about the past, just to document it like we do today, right? So again, well, I'm just a journal. I'm going to tell you the facts of what happened in the past. Rather than write about the past to just document the past, biblical authors wrote primarily for their present day audience, their present day audience to make sense of something in the present by remembering something in the past, and that's exactly what Judges is doing for us. It's inviting us into a, 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 a tragedy that happened after the fact and them casting a line back to try to understand and locate themselves of how did we get here? And Judges gives a lot of explanation and a lot of very, very strong reasons why they ended up where they did. Okay, so there's some just cursory notes for us on kind of just let's start building our toolbox around how to handle these texts. Now we will jump in. Judges chapter one, the first few verses say this. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired, came and asked the Lord. So who shall go up for us first to fight against the Canaanites and to go against them? And the Lord said, well, Judah, Judah will go up. And behold, I have given the land into his hand. That's good news. And then Judah said to Simeon, his brother, okay, so come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory that is allotted to you. So Simeon went up with him. There is all sorts of stuff happening here in this text. But first of all, what you realize is that you are dropped. We are dropped right in the middle of a story. Right? So we just, Judges starts with the death of Joshua. So to understand where we were and catch us up a little bit, understand that Judges is really a key pivot in the long story of Israel's relationship with the Lord. So if you remember, because kind of just go back a little bit to Genesis, we have God creating, speaking with the power of his word, ordering all, all the cosmos, and then committing himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then him going and rescuing Israel from slavery in Egypt through Moses, him then making a covenant and committing himself to the people at Sinai, delivering the law and understanding the blessings and cursings that come from that law in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And then Israel finally enters the promised land. Okay, so finally enters in under the leadership of Joshua. Now, why that's significant is because it's always spoken of, the promised land is always spoken of as a new Eden. It's that we were cast out and finally we're gonna go in. We're gonna go back home that we actually have as a nomadic people in the wilderness, we have a place to call home. They're finally home. They finally receive the inheritance that God had promised to Abraham. And so that covenant to Abraham is actually fulfilled in Joshua's strong leadership of Israel into that land. 
Okay, that's what happens. Now, why were they supposed to be in that land? They're supposed to be in that land to what? Be a light to the nations. And Judges shows us that the call for them to enter the promised land, to be a light to the nations, that they don't just do that. They don't just fall short of that. They do the exact opposite. And in the big story of the Bible, Judges is stuck right between the Exodus and the monarchy. And what it follows is it just kind of follows and tracks these 12 different leaders, these main judges, or uh, it's not really judge in the legal sense that you and I would think of. It's more kind of civil and military leaders. And it tracks them to show us that they are nothing like Joshua. They're nothing like Joshua. Joshua was a strong, committed, wise leader. And these judges are not that. And in Joshua 24, uh, just to the left of your, your chapter one of Judges, it says that Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. That's a stark difference for what we see in the book of Judges. And what's very, very, what very uh, crazy is it jumps right off the page at you is that it starts and says, after the death of Joshua, and then it goes on to not appoint a new leader. There's no new leader named. There's no new leader appointed. That's strange in the biblical narrative. And in verse three, we see that Judah is said, okay, well, you can lead. You can lead us into the land to kind of continue to drive out some of the other people in the land so that we can fully take uh, what, what has been given to us. Judah fails immediately and it's subtle, but if you saw it, Judah fails immediately because God says, go up into that land, I've given it to you. And Judah turns to Simeon and he's like, you wanna come with me, right? <laughs> so like military... At a military and like kind of structural level, it's like, oh, that makes sense. Just bring some buddies to go and help, right? But actually spiritually, it's disobedience and compromise right from the very first verses of this book. God shows up and says to Judah, I'm gonna give this to you. It's yours, go. And he's like, mm, I don't know if I could trust that. I'm gonna bring some help, right? So they make a deal and they're like, hey, I'll help you if you help me, this is good. But right from the beginning verses, we see something very different. Without the leadership of Joshua, we see compromise. We see disobedience. We see a lack of full committed trust in the promises of God. That's what happens in these first verses. Now, a very quick sidebar, as quick as we can make it, okay? The military conquest of Canaan poses some very real moral and ethical questions for us. And the more time that I spend kind of as a teacher of the Bible and kind of around other people who are asking questions of the Bible and answering skeptics and that kind of thing, this question of the Old Testament, the conquest itself actually is one of the most repugnant issues of the Bible to critics and skeptics. Famously, the atheist uh, Richard Dawkins wrote this mainly on reflecting about the conquest of Canaan. The God of the Old Testament is argu arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now, the reason why I read this to you is not because Richard Dawkins knows what he's talking about, because it's interesting that he as not a Bible scholar, but as a biologist and an atheist, doesn't actually have any moral leg to stand on in his worldview to even make any moral adjective descriptions of God, the God of scripture. But I read this to you because what he's pointing out is something that definitely needs to be wrestled with. Because if this is the portrayal that comes seeping out of the pages of scripture about the God of the Bible, then we need to be able to understand, is that the case? And when you read through Joshua and you go through Joshua 6 through 11 in particular, you see things like this, Joshua 6, 21. So the Israelites devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Later in Joshua 10, Joshua conquered the whole land, the whole region. He completely destroyed everyone in the land, leaving no survivors, just as the Lord, the God of Israel had commanded. And in other places like Deuteronomy 20, verse 16 through 17. So they completely destroy, 
the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jabbawakis, all, all of them, the hobbits, just as the Lord your God commanded you. Okay? What is going on in these texts? Because if that's true, then we do have a problem. What is actually going on here? And for us as believers who look at scripture, all scripture as being God-breathed and profitable for us, for teaching and instruction and formation, how do we balance this kind of description with God being gracious, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? How do we balance this with the God of the Old Testament being the one who has a heart as a father for the fatherless? What do we do with texts like Ezekiel that say that God doesn't take any pleasure in the death of anyone, even the wicked? Or the hundreds of passages about God's heart for the foreigner and the outsider, the non-Israelite, the Gentile nations. How do we reconcile these things? What do we do with these texts? The question does have to be asked, is the God of the Old Testament a genocidal God? Is that what these are doing? And that should strike a nerve for us. And I think that's why someone like Richard Dawkins, even though he doesn't necessarily have the moral framework to actually make these comments, it does actually strike a nerve for someone like Richard Dawkins because his image bearer is showing. Because that should strike a nerve for us if that is the case, if that's the nature and character of God. And right away, you have flashes of the Nazi eradication of 6 million plus Jews in World War II, or the one million deaths in the Armenian genocide where we had the systematic mass murder and ethnic cleansing of Armenians during World War I, or the Rwandan genocide of 1994 where almost a million people, a million Tutsis were slaughtered in the course of 100 days by the Hutu militia. This is repugnant. We, we should actually have a, a, a very gut level response to this. It is evil. It is wicked. And here's what we have to understand about what happens in scripture here. And here's a few principles to help us understand this tension. Number one, the racial, ethnic, and cultural identity of the Canaanite people groups had nothing to do with the conquest. It was not a factor in the conquest whatsoever. We're told over and over again why this is even happening. And it always is moral. Leviticus 18 is a passage written to detail all of the sins of the people of that land to tell Israel, don't be like them. We see things like idolatry and incest. We see sex trafficking. We see prostitution. We see infanticide. We see all sorts of sexual brokenness, adultery, bestiality. We see the molestation and sacrifice of children where children are put into the fire to just give us a good crop. Leviticus 18 tells us exactly what these people are like. And God delays the judgment of the Canaanites for 400 years. 400 years. He actually offered mercy. You can read about that in Genesis 15. He, he actually restrains judgment of these people for 400 years. And then throughout the story, we see him rescuing and redeeming Canaanites. So Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute in Jericho, she is redeemed and rescued. Why? Because she trusted the Lord. The Gibeonites who are in Canaan, the entire people come and become part of Israel. So every time you see the stranger and the foreigner and those people, they're, they're entire groups of Canaanites who went, okay, fine, we'll cut it out. Like we'll actually come and worship the Lord. The Shechemites are, are a people that are described as worshiping Yahweh with the reading of God's word in Joshua 8. So don't, don't just think again that this is like a wholesale rejection of a people because of God's chosen people, Israel. We have to be very careful because we do weird stuff with that. Plus, you have to understand, this is what's crazy. God repeatedly threatens to do the same and judge Israel. There's no, there's no two different ways that he deals with Israel and then the nations. God is not inconsistent like that. God is, is perfectly righteous. He's perfectly just. And repeatedly he tells Israel, the land will vomit you out if you do not obey. And it does. The same judgment that God says will come upon the Canaanites does come upon Israel. 
We have a whole story of exile and displacement and judgment because Israel refuses to represent and recognize and worship the God who has redeemed them. So then what do we do with these texts? Well, in Joshua, we read this. All the land was captured, all the kings were defeated, and all the people were destroyed. Except they weren't. You with me on that? Hence, judges. Hence, the rest of the Old Testament. The Canaanites are still there. That's the problem. So this word, you got to understand, in Hebrew, this is going back to like my Hebrew grammar and syntax classes. The, the, the phrase utterly destroyed actually is a figure of speech in the ancient Near East that we see outside of scripture too in other documents that really just mean completely kind of got rid of them. Right? That's like saying last night, oh, the Habs killed the leaves. They slaughtered them last night. They didn't, it was a really close game, but they slaughtered the leaves last night. They completely annihilated the leaves, okay? No one's gonna go, oh my gosh, I can't believe the Montreal Canadiens murdered some of the Leaf players. No one's gonna do that. Well, why? Well, because we know it's exaggeration. We know it's a figure of speech. We know it is hyperbole. That's exactly what happens in the Hebrew here. It's known military language for hyperbole. It's like, oh yeah, we went in and we decimated them. We utterly destroyed all of them. Except, church, they're not. They're still here. All throughout the Old Testament, they're still here. Right? And it's the same word that God uses when he has the Babylonians come in and destroy Judah, utterly destroyed all Judah. It's like, well, that's not true because we have the remnant of the people that are left. And even with the archaeology and some of the things that have been unearthed about some of the cities that are mentioned, like Jericho, like Ai, like Hazor and others, what we know from the archaeology of these cities, and this is important, is that these were not urban centers with a bunch of men, women, and children living, just trying to mind their own business and get along with their life. And then Israel came in and committed genocide. That's not what the archaeology is showing us at all. In fact, they weren't urban centers or towns in the way that you and I would think about them at all. They were military outposts. These cities were set up as military posts. So the conquests that Joshua engages in to go into the land is to drive them out. And it's more of a spiritual and moral um, emphasis than it has anything to do with the people themselves. And we see that in the heart of God because he rescues some of those same people. So when we have to, when we understand this conquest, these are way more like military raids against the front line of other military, okay? So this is war. Can't get away from the fact that it's war. So I can't clean that up for you. It is still war but we're not dealing with a genocidal massacre of a bunch of innocent people. We're dealing with a barbaric time in history where war was necessary to actually take the inheritance that God had promised Israel and make it happen. Okay, so I know that doesn't clear everything up, but that's really quickly, hopefully, a way that we can better understand some of the descriptions that we see about the conquest. And chapter one picks up where Joshua leaves off and talks about exactly that. And we're not gonna read all of chapter one, but in chapter one, nine different tribes of Israel try to keep pushing Canaan out. They try to keep pushing the people out. Uh, one of my favorite happens in chapter one where there's a guy, a king called Adonai Bezek, who uh, they find him, they take over the city of Bezek, they find him and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And you're like, yeah, I mean, as you do, that's normal. Right? But it's really interesting. The moral questions that we have, it's like, well, that wasn't nice. They shouldn't have done that. Adonai Bezek has no problem with it. Like he's now thumbless and toeless. And he goes, oh yeah. I mean, hey, I guess God's, uh, he's, he's judged me. Uh, that's fair. I did this to 70 other kings before. So, I mean, I guess that's actually pretty gracious that I just now don't have thumbs and toes. And then he's actually brought to Jerusalem and that's where he ends up finishing his life and dying. So even in these weird stories of like, why cut off his toes and his thumbs? And we'll talk about this throughout the series, the idea of God's judgment. We'll get into that later. But it's just amazing that the moral question, we'd be like, how dare God have Israel cut off his thumbs and toes? And then we'd shake our fist at the heavens of God. I can't believe you did that. But the people in the text have no issue morally with that happening. Even the guy who doesn't have toes and thumbs. Because he's like, oh yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Actually, I'm really glad they only took my toes and thumbs, right? 
So that was one of my favorite stories from chapter one. But here's what happens. They go and they're trying to push out the Canaanites. And then we read in, in verse 19, and the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he couldn't, this is key, but he couldn't drive out the inhabitants because they had chariots of iron. Okay, so right away you're like, yeah, that makes sense. If they had chariots, they must've been really strong. Except this is really starting to pull on our heartstrings. You're like, oh man, Israel, they tried. Like, oh, sweetie, good try. You tried to get them out of there. Uh, you know, maybe the Lord just wasn't strong enough. Except it's not true. If you remember anything about chariots, you know, kind of like how with the Red Sea, the Lord just washed all of Pharaoh's chariots out of the way, right? Chariots aren't a big deal. That's not what this text is doing. But here's what's happening. The, the, the hearer and the, the, the reader is like, oh, Israel, you're trying your best to do what the Lord asked you to, except it's not true. It downplays their half obedience. It downplays their compromise. It downplays the fact that this text is trying to sanctify their rebellion from the Lord, okay? So this is the human perspective. Israel's like, no, no, God, I just, I tried my best. I tried to do it. Honestly, I was trying to be obedient. And then guess what happens in chapter two? God shows up and gives his assessment. So we have the human assessment of like, I tried my best. God shows up in chapter two and watch this. Now the angel of the Lord, that's always code in the Old Testament for the Lord himself went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and I brought you into the land. I did that, that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you and that you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall actually break down their altars, get rid of their idols, but you have not obeyed my voice. And this question is key. What is this that you have done? Now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. What is going on here? Well, the angel of the Lord says he went up from Gilgal to Bochum. It's like, oh, did, did the Lord live in Gilgal? No, that's actually really key. When we see place names like that, Gilgal was a town just west of the Jordan near Jericho where Joshua and the Israelites covenanted themselves and set up the tabernacle. That's very, very key. And so what's happening is the Lord's like, no, no, remember what we did there? Like, so sometimes church, the Lord has to bring us back to where he redeemed us from to remind us that we're not living in light of it. You with me? And that's what he's doing here. He's like, I just left Gilgal. Remember the place that, that we actually committed to each other and I rescued you and you promised, what have you done? Why have you done this? And if you understand that question, it's a hyperlink back to where? To the garden. It's the same question the Lord asked Adam. What is this that you have done? And church, here's what Judges is. A long, tragic, complicated answer to that question. What have you done? And here's what the Lord is saying through this text, where the people are saying, God, we couldn't. God is saying, no, you wouldn't. Where the people are saying, I can't. God's saying, no, it's that you won't. Where they're saying, no, no, but we're unable to do this. He's saying, no, it's that you're unwilling. So then God just goes, okay, you're not willing to turn away from the idols and the non-gods of the land. So I'm not gonna even get these people out of your face. You see, one of the most loving things that God can do for you and I, church, is to hand us over sometimes to the things that we think will make us happy so that we get to the end of ourselves and we get to the end of our pursuit of happiness without God and we are only left with him and you. So the question that this text puts and holds up a mirror for us, the question this text puts to us is where are you saying, I just can't, God, I can't, I tried. But God is actually saying, no, it's that you won't. Where are you compromising? What hidden private sin and desires and behaviors? Are you just saying, no, no, but God, I can't. And God's saying, no, it's that you won't. Where do you see a refusal in your own heart to, to offer forgiveness to somebody who's hurt you? And you're like, I just can't, I can't do it. And God's saying, no, it's that you won't. That is what this text asks us. That our heart is so good at manufacturing reasons why half obedience and partial obedience and compromise is really just us trying our best. 
And God shows up and says, no, it's never been about you trying your best. It's been about how strong I am. It's been about the fact that chariots are strong to you. Chariots are a big deal to you, but they're nothing to me. These things that that you run after to tell you who you are, they're nothing compared to me. These non-gods that you think will give you security and safety and fulfillment, they're nothing compared to me. So the question to us out of this text is what what have you done? Why, Why have you done this? And where are you and I saying, no, no, but God, I just can't. And God's saying, no, it's that you won't. Be honest, have an honest assessment with your heart, the Lord is asking. But even with this compromise and even with this cycle that begins in this chapter, we're gonna see it go through several cycles of just compromise, partial obedience, dysfunction and brokenness, right? Rebellion and redemption, wash, rinse, repeat. It's a groundhog day of compromise, the entire book. But what's most surprising about the book of Judges and about the biblical arc of redemption is that it isn't that people are train wrecks. We already know that. It's not that Israel abandons the Lord that rescued them. We already knew that. But it's that God actually continues to pursue them. That God actually continues to forgive them. That God actually raises up redeemers to come and rescue them throughout Judges and beyond when we get into the monarchy with the kings. That is it that God actually still pursues you and I, even if we've experienced the redemption that he offers and we're not appreciating it. He shows up to remind us what he's done so that we will appreciate it, so that we will worship him, so that we will serve him. And it gets worse before it gets better. In verse 11 of chapter two, we see that that compromise ends up in false worship. We're gonna deal with this next week in detail. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And we'll talk about that next week. And they abandoned the Lord. So the God that will never abandon them, they abandoned him. The God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. Okay, we'll deal with this next week because we've got to get, we've got to land this plane. But notice that it's that they abandoned the Lord and they went after other gods. The key words are, instead of going up with God, like he says to Judah, go up into the land, they actually go after other gods. Instead of going up with the Lord and going to the Lord, they go after other gods. And the key refrain that we see throughout Judges, it happens seven times, which is intentional, is that Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Listen, not in the sight of other people, not in the sight of their spouse, not in the sight of their friends and their coworkers or their kids or their pastor. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, now listen, if our cultural moment is summed up by anything, it's what Judges 21, 25 says, is that there's no king and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. That's the tension of this text, that they didn't care what they looked like in the eyes and in the sight of the Lord. They only cared about how they looked in the eyes of other people and how they define right and wrong and good and bad and and beautiful and true and objectively worth giving our life to. So church, today in our culture, it's not that people don't care what's right in God's eyes. It's not just that. It's that they actually see God's standards as oppressive and evil. It's that God, if he's real, he's definitely not good because he gets in the way of my self-actualization. He gets in the way of my authentic self. If God is real, he's a cosmic killjoy and I'm gonna go live my best life. So let me ask you, if that's the cultural water we swim in, do you want to do what's right in the Lord's eyes? Do you even pay attention to what is right in the Lord's eyes? Or are you so influenced by what is right in our own eyes, in our own estimation. Whose opinion and approval matters most to you? When you actually look at your your decisions and, and what you'll give your life to and what career you'll choose and where you'll live, whose opinion and approval actually dictates that for you? Because you pay attention to that and you'll see exactly who, whose eyes are most important, who you're trying to live within the sight of. Commentator Ken Way in his, in his uh, commentary, uh, Terry on Judges says it this way, listen, doing what is right in one's own eyes is actually worse than breaking the covenant because it implies that God's word and works have been left entirely out of the picture. 
Israel is depicted here thinking and acting as if the Torah doesn't even exist, which poses the question to you and I, is there any difference between an Israelite and a Canaanite? The answer the book of Judges gives us is no. Judges was called by one commentator, the Canaanization of Israel. That they were set apart, but they were still living to fit in. And Judges is the story of the Bible writ small for us. That church, listen, non-gods always over promise and under deliver. And that all of us as worshipers, we're all worshipers. It's not that there's religious and and non-religious. Worship is not a religious activity for religious people. It's just finding out what we actually look to and trust in to give us security and safety and meaning. It's what we look to for fulfillment. So notice that when Israel abandons the Lord, it's not that they sit in a neutral spiritual state just humming, right? There's no neutrality here. There's either true worship of the true God or false worship of non-gods. That's what we see here. And that's all of us. Whether you consider yourself spiritual or religious or not, that's every single one of us. We can't help it, but give ourselves over to something that promises to give us meaning. In Genesis, that's what we see, that human beings are set apart. Okay, so they're made holy. Why are they made holy? Well, they're set apart as image bearers. They were created to reflect as little mirrors into creation what this God is like, his goodness, his beauty, his community. And then when sin enters the picture, what does it do? Well, it inverts all of that. It breaks all of that. And instead of being image bearers that reflect our creator, we end up looking to created things to tell us who we are, to shape us, to tell us how to live, to tell us what to live for. So our core problem, and we'll do this next week in detail, isn't that we do bad things. It's that we worship the wrong things. It's that we look to non-gods to give, it was, give us what only God can. Our core, core problem isn't that we do bad things sometimes, but really we're just at the core good. No, it's that we look to good things and we want good things ultimately. We ultimately want good things. So the creep of this is so subtle. And that's what Judges is telling us. Judges is screaming this message at us. Brothers and sisters, it's screaming at you that you underestimate the danger of compromise. That you underestimate the danger of your idols. That you underestimate the insatiable desire of your heart for immediate gratification from non-gods rather than committed trust of the true God. That's what Judges is screaming at us. Judges is screaming at us that good things are good, but they're not God. Career success and sex and love and romance and material things and family and approval, those are good things, but they are not God. And the second that we forget the creep of this in our heart is the way that we end up quickly in compromise. The way that we quickly dethrone God and enthrone self or something else and break everything in the process. So Israel's problem isn't military conquest here. Israel's problem isn't that they, well, they should have just listened and done their military thing. Israel's problem is spiritual. And Israel's problem isn't that they fully rejected God. Okay, listen, listen to me. It's not that they fully rejected God. It's that they hadn't fully rejected everything that competed to take God's place in their life. And church, there's a huge difference. Okay, look right at me. Partial obedience always ends in total disobedience. Always. Compromise somewhere always ends in destruction everywhere. And church, if we can learn anything this week from the news of Ravi Zacharias, which by the way, we gotta not talk about this as as sexual misconduct. This is sexual abuse, spiritual abuse, and rape. It's not not a sexual oopsie, okay? This is is demonic, is what we see in in Ravi Zacharias, okay? And if you haven't read the report, read the report. Please do it. Go Go and do it. Ask me for it. I'll send it to you. Read it. Because that's how we end up with this. No accountability, many gods, little celebrity pastors and leaders and teachers putting up on a on a pedestal, th- pedestal thinking that they're the hero, right? Seeing things like Proverbs 10, 9, that whoever walks in 
integrity walks securely, but, but he who makes his way crooked will be found out. Like, like you will. Ravi did. A double life, calculated sin, demonic behavior, all the while being publicly someone different. Israel didn't fully reject God, but they did stop short of fully rejecting everything that takes center stage in their life. That's their problem. You see, Israel was set apart. That was the point. It's the point of the covenant. They were set apart, but they were just happy to fit in. They were, they were made holy, but they were just living to be happy. That's the difference. And they're no different than the Canaanites. They're no different than the Canaanites that they're supposed to be a light to. That's the point of the conquest. It's supposed to be a light to the nations. So remember from last week that holiness, this idea of being set apart, it's a communal identity of non-conformity, of non-compromise. Not perfection morally, but being made holy by the God who is perfect morally. And this confronts cultural values of our day. It confronts the norms and an alternative and better way of living, right? With that way of living as a light to the nations. It's a new identity that changes who we are that then leads to changing how we live. And what we saw in Israel is there was no more holiness left. There's no more resistance of non-gods and idols of the day. Listen, if you were easily able to become a Christian and your life barely changed, you may not be a Christian. If you don't find a resistance towards and a confrontation of the values and ethics of our culture, then you may not have a biblical value and ethic at all. Like, like you may just be living in cute, tiny compromises that will eventually lead to bigger ones. And the creep of this is so dangerous and it's so destructive. There's anything Judges tells us, it's that. So church, this is why the apostle Paul can write things in Ephesians like this, okay? This will be what I'll leave, leave us with. This is why he can write things in Ephesians like, like this. Don't live like the Gentiles do. No longer live like the Gentiles do. Remember who Paul's talking to? Who's he talking to? The Gentiles, right? So he's like living, he's telling them, don't live like everybody else around you. Okay? He's talking to Gentiles. He's talking to people who don't put their trust in God and go and trust other things to give them value in life. And he says, don't do that, but instead, and then he, he lays this all out and he says, but this is not the way that you learned Christ, right? Don't go and give yourself over to these things. Don't go and live for immediate gratification. Don't go and be somebody pro different in private than you are publicly. Don't have a gap of integrity, but instead, this is not how you learned Christ assuming that you have heard about him and you were taught in him because if we don't know Christ, it's a different ball game. But for those of, of us who do know Christ and have heard about him and are taught in him as the truth is in him to put off your old self, take it off, get rid of it, get it out, completely get rid of it, tear it down, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Our problem is that we want things wrong that we're broken in what we love and what we give ourselves to and instead be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. Take off the old self, put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That word there is image. Is that there's a new image, there's a better image. As image bearers, there's a better image and it's given, it's, we're made holy, that we are given a new life from within, from a change and a transformation of our heart and mind, not a manufacturing of that on the outside because we can pretend and we can fake. What this does mean is when we understand this well, we can't live our lives the same as everybody else and then sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on top. We can't even sprinkle good theology on top. We can't even sprinkle uh, being a great charismatic orator and speaker and teacher on top. Following Jesus, church, comes with a clear departure from following everything else. It means that you can't become a follower of Jesus and barely know. Like, it's like, oh, yeah, I don't know, kind of changed a little bit. Like, like, you know it's way easier to live and think and act like everyone else? You know that? Like, I always, I always find it funny when, when skeptics would be like, oh, religion is just a crutch. No, no, like, you live with a crutch because it's just easier to be like everyone else. Like, it's way easier just to lit, read the teleprompter of our culture and then be like, ah, oh, it sounds good. That's easy. That's weak. That's tired, right? It's way easier just to think and live and spend and binge and watch and do with our bodies like everybody else and think like everybody else. That's way easier, way easier. 
So this is not a crutch. It's not about a crutch at all. This is actually a resistance. This is actually a confrontation that we are made holy, that we are made different. And then we go and we stumble and we fumble and we limp towards God in this. And that's what Judges shows us. That all he needs us to do is limp towards him. That's all he needs. Doesn't need us killing it. Doesn't need us nailing it. Doesn't need us having this amazing, well-manufactured, well-sanitized public image that doesn't match our private life. All he needs is you and I limping towards him so that he can put on the new self, that he can continue to renew our mind and our heart. So church, listen, the message we give to the world by our barely changed Christian life is that God really doesn't have any power to save and he doesn't have any power to change but we've been made holy, but, but we've had a renewed mind. We've been given a renewed heart that, that, that this leads to a changed life. Some of us are still so focused on changing what we do and don't do and what we believe or don't believe. And we can do all of that and end up with a polished external life and unchanged hearts and minds. So here's how we can respond to this. Let me ask, who are you when no one's watching? Who are you when, you when you're left alone? When you're in the dark? What were you doing last night? What were you doing this week? When you had no one else that had eyes on you or ears and what you said? No one was watching you. You weren't living to be good in the sight of other people. But you were left alone in the eyes of the Lord. Because that's the truest version of yourself. That's who you truly are. In the dark, when you're alone. You aren't who you are right now. You aren't who you are when, in public. You're not who you are online. That's not who you are. You're pretending. We all are. But here's the good news, church, and this is the beauty of the gospel. That God relentlessly pursues you and loves you and extends grace and mercy to you there in the dark. That when you're left, just you and the Lord, in the sight of the Lord, that the good news is that he actually wants you there. Like, like with all of your compromise, with all of your partial obedience, with all of your unending appetite for broken saviors to run after things that really don't matter, all of that, he still loves you there. He loves that part of you. He loves the real you. That's the authentic self, right? He loves that authentic self. And then he changes you and he loves you so much that he doesn't leave you there. But he does ask us to put off and take, take down anything, anything that would stand between us and him in that way. And secondly, and finally, where are you compromising right now? Because you are. And so am I. Where are you compromising now? Even if it's small. Listen, I'm not, I'm not saying that this is like, hey, we got like crazy Ravi Zacharias type sin that we need to uncover. And if we do, then we better uncover it or else our sins will find us out. But I'm talking about compromise that seems so innocent. It's like, well, it's just that, I mean, I mean, I'm single, right? So I, mean, I guess I, I gotta do that. I mean, I'm single, I have urges. Or like, well, I just, I mean, it's not really like cheating on my taxes per se. It's just kind of a little bit of a, a workaround. Or like, well, I, I guess I could be more generous or I, I guess I could be, you know, do something differently that way. Or hey, I, I, I guess I could waste way less time in what I'm doing and just binging and watching and scrolling and sitting and consuming. Where are you cutting corners? Where are you compromising? Because church, listen, you continue to compromise, you continue to cut corners, you continue to justify little things. You, you justify the inch and it will take a mile. And that's why in scripture, all over the place, we're told to examine ourselves. Like our culture is built on examining other people to try to boost up ourselves, right? That's the point. And even some of the responses to Ravi Zacharias, are so unhelpful because it's just really about them. Okay, so th th examine yourselves, right? We're told to keep a close watch on our life and doctrine, on our life first, then our doctrine, what we believe. But in this Christendom thing that we have, it's all about what you believe, all about what you know, all about the knowledge that you have. And then we end up with a Ravi Zacharias. Okay, so where are you drifting? Where are you coasting? Where are you compromising? Allow God to meet you there with this love with this love that loves you right there, as you are there. He doesn't want a better version of you. He wants you there because he wants you weak. He wants you savable so that he can rescue and redeem you. Like Psalm 139, 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. That's why you have to pray, church. Try me and know my thoughts. Examine me, Lord, and see if there's any grievous way in me at all. You see that? If there's any grievous way, lead me into the way everlasting. 
That's the kind of prayers that we need to be praying. So that's what we're gonna pray today. So we're gonna pray right now. What is God calling you to put down? What is God calling you to take off, put off? What kind of compromise is he calling you to walk away from because you understand the danger of it? Put that down, tear it down, take it off and then come and follow me, Jesus is saying. You can't follow me and follow that at the same time. You can't love me and love that at the same time. You can't obey that and obey me at the same time. Let's pray that now. Gracious God, you are so good. You are good. And even when we understand to see your goodness and we understand, we, we, we fight to understand the tension of experiencing this goodness. When we have things that really just leave us bewildered and confused and, and disturbed, like, like the news this week. I pray that God, you would flex. I pray that God, you would be made much of. I pray that God, we would have people turn to you in ways that we've never turned to you before. I pray that we would learn from the compromise and the partial obedience of Israel and that we would commit ourselves to you, God, the God who covenants yourself to us in grace and mercy and in love. I pray for true repentance. I pray for holiness. I pray that for us as a church, that Lord, we would just experience the freedom of this. That Lord, this holiness is not a burden at all. That holiness is true freedom. That there's nothing left to hide. There's nothing else to bring because we have nothing. And we come with open hands and empty pockets so that God, we are made right in your eyes. I pray that for us now. I pray that even now as we, as we jump off this call and we go and as we worship, as we reflect, as we meditate, that you would use this to this week, just draw our eyes to you more and away from things that would draw us to compromise or entice us to partial disobedience, that we would fully covenant and throw ourselves at you. We love you and we thank you for the work that we get to rest in, in the cross of your son, Jesus. And we pray, Spirit, that you would apply that afresh and that we would walk in light of that. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.